gehen. Ha, jetzt sind wir heute auf. It's a familiar passage to many of us, I'm sure, particularly this time of year. If you've been in church many years, you've heard this passage before, and if you haven't, you may well have as well. The thing is, I don't know about you, sometimes I find Christmas a little bit disconnected, a bit abstract. We're talking about a God who came down, but I still can't quite grasp it. I need it to be grounded in real life. Is it just me? Or does it just feel a little bit other, a bit disconnected? It's a wonderful story and I believe it, but I can't quite, I don't get it in my belly. Does that make sense? So what I'd like us to do is to look through this passage again and understand the context of it and just come across um, a phrase that's been coming up in the past couple of weeks here at Beacon. It's been about the God of surprises and expecting the unexpected. Last week at Family Zone, we had about expect the unexpected and we learned more about the giver. You learn about the giver by the gift, don't you? And actually, the gift is often surprising. And actually, sometimes we can pigeonhole God a little bit about what we expect of him, and we make assumptions about what he should be doing in our situations, and then get really confused when he does something other. <laughs> Strange enough, he's God, knows better than us, and of course he will. But we need to try and kind of enlarge our understanding of what this God can do. He's the God of surprises, and we need to believe this. And it came up at Prayer and Vision last week about this, this phrase from David about God being a God of surprises. And we, need, we almost need to expect him to surprise us. That's not being arrogant and going, come on then, surprise us. Give us a big punchline then. It's not like that. But it's, if he's big enough to know more than we do, we should expect to be surprised, shouldn't we? I want to break their mobiles. So, can we have the first slide, which will be in purple? We've got technical hitches today. So there was going to be a video at the end of this sermon. I think we're going to avoid that because there'll be purple faces. We can give it a try. <laughs> Just look a bit odd. We'll give it a go. Okay. Um, I want to talk about three things from Isaiah chapter 9. I want to talk about the underdog, the turnaround, and the rescuer. I don't know if you can see that amongst all these decks. I know you had trouble reading your songs earlier, didn't you? I want to talk about the underdog because this story that is presented through the prophet Isaiah, a message from God to his people through Isaiah, there's a story of an underdog here. Who loves a good underdog story? Yeah, rags to riches, someone who's of low status, not considered viable, unlikely to win. You've almost written them off before they've even started. You love it when they actually come through, don't you? Leicester City winning the Premier. Really? Having a laugh, aren't you? Oh, hang on. I follow Crystal Palace everywhere around the country in 1993, the first year of the official premiership. We came third. We beat Liverpool home and away. That was the glory days. All changed again since. But then I met Jenny, actually. So I stopped following them and they fell apart. So that's what happened. It's all Jenny's fault. <coughs> Underdog stories. We love them. Eddie the Eagle, 1988, Winter Olympics. We loved him, didn't we? It was rubbish, but we loved him. The... the uh, the first Brit to enter the ski jump in the Winter Olympics is 1929. He came last and everything. But we loved him just for trying. We loved him. He was the underdog. He got frowned upon by the Olympics establishment so much that as soon as the Olympics finished, they changed all the rules. This is true. Changed the rules, set the bar even higher so no one could try that again. It's true. We love the underdog. Well, there's a bit of an underdog story going on here that I'd like us to look at. You see, God's people... They know there's a Messiah coming. He's been spoken through the prophets. They know there's something going to happen. God's going to come down. But they already they've pigeonholed what he should look like. 
They're expecting this king to come riding in with his army and sort out the oppressors and this sort of thing. They've already been enslaved many times before, particularly in Egypt, and now it's happening again. And in this context, they're expecting this king to ride in and sort, sort things out at a government or an army, a military level. So we need to understand the context of these verses here. If you read previously in chapter 8, you'll see it talks about the coming Assyrian invasion. And the God's people are in the land looking about actually in distress, as the words it's used. They're in anguish. They're distressed. And they're crying out to the king and to God, where are you? Sort this out. We're in trouble. We can't see what you're up to. And they have an expectation of what it should look like. So let's read the first two verses. We're going to read this in piecemeal and work through it, okay? So chapter 9, verse two, first two verses. So this is what God says through Isaiah to the people. He said, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. I'll talk about these in a minute. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Just need to understand the story here. Some of God's people, the Israelites, who've settled in this, what was their promised land, they finally arrive. After hundreds of years in slavery in Egypt, they finally arrive in their promised land. We heard the Exodus story just the past few months, haven't we? And now here they are, again hundreds of years later, been through a whole load of history and oppressors all around and tyranny and good kings and bad kings. But when they settled in this area, each tribe was allotted a portion of the land. A bit like our counties, if you like, kind of. Not the same, but the same. Uh, and, the, and the tribes of Israel were named after Jacob's sons. And one of them was Zebulun, who we've just read here. We've got Zebulun and Naphtali. Naphtali was son number six, he gets mentioned. And it's particularly Zebulun is the one we're going to focus on. Zebulun was son number ten. So tribe number ten. Way down the pecking order. Way down the pecking order. Relatively unspoken of, to be honest. Obscurity is Zebulun's middle name, really. And his descendants along with those of Naphtali's descendants, took this, some of this region of the north, near the Sea of Galilee, is the northern, northern part of the kingdom, northern part of the Promised Land. And this area around the Sea of Galilee was itself had become despised as a region. This is because it, was, it became known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the non-Jews is what it was known as, mainly because of its mixed population. Um, it was on the trade route, which is why in verse 1 it's described as the way of the sea. It's the trade route. And so lots of people, indigenous, um, non-indigenous people, aliens, moving in and out, some settling, and end up with a lot of mixed race people. There's a lot of mixed population there. And it even as a region got annexed on and off over the centuries, both politically and geographically. And as a result, it got looked down on by the rest of Israel in many ways. All in all, it's not a place of Jewish purity. And today, even today, in a derogatory manner, it's described as the Arab capital of Israel, in a looking down on it kind of way. That's what it's called. So in the eyes of those waiting for the rescuer to come, that northern region was just a place for foreigners and fishermen, not for royalty, to come in and sort our problems out, was it? And in this area of Zebulun, and still is, is this town called Nazareth. Now, we know the nativity story. He was born in Bethlehem. We know eventually he ends up growing up in Nazareth, and that's where he goes to live. That's in this area of Zebulun. So Nazareth itself, no bigger than 50 houses maximum. It's not a lot bigger than Rekolva. In fact, Rekolva's bigger than Nazareth was then. Pretty small, insignificant, and it's sheltered by a natural bowl in the terrain. So it, it resides quietly and a bit hidden away, even ge geographically. 
On the grand scale of things, it's not really somewhere worthy of mention, is it? This whole area, and particularly this town. And trying to picture it, compare it to our country, you've got all the, you've got the capital, Jerusalem in the south, is a bit like London, and all the rich home counties, rich Judah, it's all that kind of area. Up in the North Sea of Galilee, Nazareth, it's a bit like Darlington in, the, in County Durham. It's probably the best way to describe it. Who's been to Darlington? A few people. Is it somewhere worthy of mention? There's not a lot going on there. In fact, Daniel Defoe, who wrote Robinson Crusoe, he described Darlington this way. Nothing remarkable but dirt. <laughs> Bless. If you're listening to the recording from Darlington, we love you. But this is how Nazareth was perceived. It wasn't worth thinking of. It was way off the radar. And in fact, in John chapter 1, verse 46, when Jesus has arrived 700 years later after this prophecy, when he arrives, what does someone say of him? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That is how it is viewed, even then. Now we know that uh, one of Isaiah's contemporaries, another prophet called Micah, in, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he prophesies that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And he was. So actually, in light of that, that throws Nazareth and Zebulun even further off the radar, doesn't it? So you've got this tiny town that's hidden by the terrain in an area considered unworthy. It's not even where the Messiah will be born. And yet, Isaiah prophesies that God will make it, his word here, glorious in the latter days. See that? In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the nations. He's saying the Saviour will not just come to the royal land of Judah by birth, which he does. But he won't just stay there. He'll also come to this despised northern countryside of Galilee. So much so that he'll be pleased to be called Galilean. He'll be proud of it. This is who I am. This is my, this is my childhood roots. You see, our Saviour is not just the king of the rich he's the king of the poor he's not just the king of the high he's the king of the lowly as well isn't he and yet which ones does he choose to spend most of his earthly life with the poor and lowly it's really interesting got a surprises was this how he's expected was this how you'd write the story not at all so before we move on i just want to ask these questions have you ever felt downtrodden have you ever felt ignored have you ever felt forgotten? Some of you might be ticking every box, I don't know. Have you ever been passed over in the home, in family, in the workplace? Have you ever felt like you're off other people's radar? I guess we've all sensed that at some point, haven't we? Then this message is good news for you. He's not a God who swoops in and does things at a high level. He comes down and rolls his sleeves up and gets involved in our individual lives and cares about each one of us. He's a God of surprises, isn't he? So that's the setting. Let's look at the turnaround. Verse 3. What happens? Well, this is what God continues to say through Isaiah to the people. He says, You have multiplied the nation, and you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Well, according to this, he's saying that this backwater of forgotten people suddenly experienced multiplication and harvest, dividing the spoils of a surprise victory. 
It's saying the sold, soiled clothes of warriors are burned. They're no longer needed. It's saying there's no longer a place for war. No longer will it hang as a threat. No longer will the underdog be trampled on or treated dismissively. That's really interesting. That doesn't seem to fit, does it? Because have we seen this happen? Have we seen Israel as a land of peace ever since then? No, <laughs> not at all. It's not as it seems to appear. So God has set them free from tyranny many, many times over. Different oppressors have come, come in and taken over and set them free from them. But we need to understand that another empire tended to appear as soon as that other one disappeared. We need to understand that conquerors regularly came in from the north. This is how they came in from Persia and, and, and Syria. These are the Assyrians here, but there's Persia later on. This region was the first stop for raiders and for oppressors and for dictatorships, and it became the norm for them. So in fact, Isaiah is speaking to a people under Assyrian rule and expecting worse, which is why they're crying out. The Babylonians aren't far in the future, let alone the Romans themselves centuries later in Jesus' time. As a people, they're oppressed over and over and over again. So what's going on here? Is, is Isaiah just mocking them? Just teasing them with something they're not going to get? Or is God making empty promises? Because that's kind of what it looks like, doesn't it? Are we just pigeonholing God to what we expect him to do? Or is he talking about something else? What he's ultimately promising here is that he is a God of surprises who brings freedom in the most unexpected ways and the most unexpected places. Not always how we expect. If you're oppressed, he's saying you can still know his spiritual freedom. If you're in conflict, listen to, listen to this. If you're in conflict with others through circumstances outside of your control, you can still know his peace and his harvest and his multiplication. You can still know that. It doesn't always look like it, certainly doesn't always feel like it, but it doesn't mean it's not yours. It's just different. If you've been stolen from, I don't just mean financially, in many different ways, relationship, emotions, whatever it might be. If you've been stolen from, know that his justice prevails and you can stand in victory, even when it looks otherwise. Because he's a God of surprises. He can do far more than we can imagine. God is promising that he hasn't forgotten his people, even when it may not look like it, even when we may have forgotten him. He's saying rescue is coming, you're going to need to accept it, but it's available. It's a God of surprises. So it's from this lowly place, this lowly region, this lowly setting, that the Messiah, the rescuer, chooses to come. Of all the gin joints, in all the towns, in all the worlds, he decided to walk into this one. It's a God of surprises. This is where he chooses to identify with and emerge from. There's the context. Are you ready to meet the rescuer? Yeah? Excited for verse 6. Here we go. For to us a child is born. Not a man, a child. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who is this rescuer? Matthew chapter 4 will make it very, very clear to you that he's talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew chapter 4, verse 13. I'll read those few verses. It confirms this is about Jesus. 
Here we see not only the answer coming in the form of the lowest of the low, but proving all along, actually, to have been the highest of the high, living amongst his people. Let's look at those names, just briefly. This is how he's described. Wonderful counsellor. I love that's the first one on the list. Not commander-in-chief. Wonderful counsellor. The best counsellor is one who is accepting and empathic, compassionate, and he's a wonderful counsellor with a capital W and a capital C. Jesus is not aloof. His wisdom is available. He's your counsellor. His wisdom is available both to you and for you. James chapter 1, isn't it? So if you need wisdom, ask him for it. It's available. Supernatural wisdom. He's the one who knows best, isn't he? Knowledge and wisdom are two different things. Remember, knowledge is knowing the stuff. Wisdom is how to put it into practice. Very, very different. I know people who know a lot of stuff and they're very unwise. Wisdom is, no, is knowing how to apply it. The best person to help you with that? Jesus. Wonderful counsellor. Here is a rescuer, just in that name alone, wonderful counsellor. Here is a rescuer who is interested and considerate and available. And what's the next name? Mighty God. Can't mince words there, can you? He's not just some guy. And he's not even some superhuman. He's so much more than that. He's God himself. This is the same God who fanned the sun into flame. Walking around in a suit of flesh. This is the same God who rolled the planets into their orbits like bowling balls. It's the same God. This is the same God who knows the number of hairs on your head. Do you know how many hairs on your head? I know how many are on mine. <laughs> but that's different. But he also knows how many hairs are in my beard, and I don't know that number. He knows you that well. He knows you that well. He ordains your days. He knows what's ahead of you. And he knows what's best for you. He knows all the anxieties and your thoughts and the joys that are racing around your head day in, day out. Sometimes there's more anxiety than joy. Sometimes there's more joy than anxiety. But he knows every single one of those. And he cares for you. It's in mighty God. Here is a rescuer who is more than able. Not just available and compassionate and accepting, but he's more than able to deal with every situation you find yourself in. What's the next name? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Which is an interesting one because we think Father's Father and He's the Son. What he's saying is He parents us by Holy Spirit. He still parents us, doesn't He? Big brother, isn't He? This wonderful Counselor who never began and will never end parents us, nurtures us. Romans chapter 8 tells us we can know Father God literally as Father in such a deep and personal way that we can call him Abba, isn't it? Abba Father, Papa Daddy. We can know Christ in the same intimate way. He wants us to grow. He wants us to not be puppets on a string or mindless followers. He wants us to be family. He wants us to be children who he shapes and guides and leads into maturity. He is a rescuer who leads and protects and nurtures us. He's a God of surprises. He's not some aloof military commander, is he? Very, very different. What's that last name? 
Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. It's another allusion to the end of war, as previously mentioned. I talked about this recently, in fact, about peace, but how... Now, I talked about our nation is in a state of peace, but we don't always experience peace within the nation, do we? But even when you're in war, and even hearing some, from some Christian refugees from the Middle East at the moment, they still find peace in Christ, even though they're in a horrible, horrible situation where family are being torn to shreds, their lives are at stake, they have to flee their own homes, they've lost kids, but they can still know Christ's peace within that. It's not being flippant about what they're going through at all. It's different. It's a peace with a capital P. It's his way that brokers peace. His peace he gives to you, even in the storms. His own peace. It's in my peace I give to you, doesn't he? He doesn't, he doesn't say, I'll stop worrying about it, you'll be okay, you'll know peace that way. No, no my peace. No relationship and intimacy with me and there you'll find security and confidence and boldness and joy even in the hardest, hardest times. It's not been dismissive of the troubles at all. Here is a rescuer who is in command and will never relinquish his hold of that even when it doesn't look like it. But the good thing is it doesn't stop there. What, verse 7 yet? Verse 7 of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So it's not, that ev- it's, not, it's not that he's in charge and it stays there. Somehow, his reign will increase. His rule will increase. His government and his peace will get bigger and bigger and bigger. I still can't quite get my head around that. But I love it. The Prince of Peace will reign forever in a way that is unlimited. His rule will not stop growing. Governments wax and wane in influence all the time, don't they? And the poles are ever shifting wildly from one party to the other. And, you know, we think we fixed it and found the right one, but then get disappointed. His government, his rule, his peace will only increase and swell and grow and expand. His kingdom's on the move. His church is growing. No matter what the papers say, he's on the move. Expect big things for this town. Expect big things for this country. Expect big things for this planet. I think we, we can pigeonhole him. We can limit him. We can box him in, can't we, in our heads. He's the God of surprises. And how will he rule? The verse continues. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We're always on the lookout for who we think would be the best ruler for our next season in this country. And then inevitably find out that we're the wrong person. Or it just proves the fact that no man or woman can rescue us or live up to that ideal. Here we've got one who does. We can trust in him. Even when I was asking those questions earlier, even if you couldn't relate to being downtrodden or ignored, even if you think you're a, you feel like a bit of a winner in life, some people do, one of life's winners, in the face of hearing about a king whose rule will never stop growing, surely you pale in insignificance compared to him, don't you? We all do, don't we? The good news is that no matter how low a view you have of yourself, or how high a view you have of yourself, the point is this God of surprises takes our breath away with both his vast power and his immense compassion, the big and the small, the macro and the micro. 
He's big enough and he cares enough for everything. We're all in need of a saviour and he meets us where we least expect it. Is this the rescuer God's people were expecting? Is this what he was going to look like? In fact, many of them still miss out, don't they? Many of the Jews are still looking and they miss the fact that he's, he's been, he's here. I was hoping to show a video. It's a few minutes long. If you don't mind purple faces, it's... Um, that curtain's closed. It's if, uh, sorry, Kevin, do you mind just turning off the lights just for a second? Just to explain, this is a few minutes um, just uh, meeting some Christians in Bethlehem. So this, this isn't Nazareth, this is now where Jesus was born. But just helps set the scene, grounds who Jesus was and is in the real world. In that culture, it's always good to get it in this context. This is just from a year or two ago. A um, number of Christians in Bethlehem talking about Christ and what, it means, what he means to them. Okay, let's give it a go and hopefully you get the gist of it. I like this song very much. The, the net here, uh, not uh, good. Is that YouTube? Yeah, yeah, this is YouTube. This is YouTube. Yes. I graduate from Bethlehem University. I have BA at accounting. I like the sheep. Uh, but uh, I need a job. The story of Jesus. Yeah. Born uh, at Bethlehem. From this road, you can't go uh, to Bethlehem from this road. This is Bethlehem. A small city, not big city. Near Bethlehem, we have big wall. Mary and Joseph, if he coming today, no, because the big wall is close to Bethlehem. He want permit from Israel. I come here every day at 1 o'clock a.m. to sell coffee and tea for the worker who crossed to Jerusalem. In the back of me, there is the wall, 12 meters in the sky with 700 kilometers around Jerusalem. It's very hard to come into Bethlehem because people think the Palestinian people are terrorists. Bethlehem is the city that Jesus born in it. He come to, to tell the people about the meaning of the peace, the meaning of the love, the meaning of the life together. The angel came to, to Maryam yeah. and told them that he has pregnant. Yeah. Maryam do not like this because uh, uh, I do not have married from where the baby, their uh, family, and they killed him. The honor, the killing. Honor killing. Honor killing. In our land, she must marry. It's shame for us. If it's not be killed, they will be thrown from her home. When she's pregnant and alone, it's her first time to have a baby. It's, I imagine God, God help her. She accepted his word. 
and she was ready to fight any obstacles. So, yeah, she was a strong woman. Gold is a king. And whatever circumstances we live, we have his identity and we give him our loyalty too. This is a water container. People would hide gold in these jars. Incense burner and frankincense means the priesthood. Jesus would carry our prayers and will carry us up to the Father. Without him, we cannot reach the Father. This is what Mir been carried in. And Mir is a sign for the sufferings that he would carry. They expected to see a prince in a castle. They did not expect a baby born in poverty. It's uh, not rich. It's, uh, it's very poor. I know all this. God loves the poor people, rich people, old people. He's a refugee. Jesus is a refugee. They wanted to kill him. There was order to kill all the children of Bethlehem, newborns to uh, two years old. That's why she flew to Egypt. Jesus uh, born a refugee because God he wanted to teach us how if Jesus born a refugee, what about us? And he teach us about to give forgiveness and uh, love. They come from God to give him the message for peace. This is the important thing that the God He's told to Isa to to, to, to to the people. Yes. The Prince of Peace being born in the most troubled land on earth, it has like a significance maybe. We need peace inside ourselves and we need peace all over the world. We can feel the peace in our life because we have a hope. Hope coming where we understand each other and the hope coming where we understand God for our life. I think Jesus knocking uh, doors of the hearts of people and he asked for anyone to open for him to start the new Christmas with him. Easter is the principle of peace. Yes, Easter is the, is the principle of peace. They even said then that they were expecting a king in a castle, not a baby in poverty. There's a God of surprises. He comes in a way we don't expect, and we've got to be careful not to box him in to how we think he should act. <coughs> Jesus was born in a place of conflict, and his family shame, infanticide. His family has become refugees for a while. He came in a way that should make us take notice. Really? He came in a way that might... Surprise us with his love and grace and mercy and joy, not the way we think he should have come. If you think you are beyond his forgiveness, be ready for a surprise. If you think you don't need his forgiveness, you're in for a surprise. If you think the difficulties of this life or world are too much for him to handle, expect to be surprised. The Prince of Peace, Isa, Jesus, he's come. He's a man of history. He's written down outside of the Bible. He came and he said the things that he did and he did the things he said. The Prince of Peace has demonstrated his power and authority in, surprising, in a surprising way that show us he is Lord of all. 
If there's one thing you go home with, even today, it's this. No matter how things might look in any nation or situation or conversation, know this. Christ is still king. No matter how things look in any nation, situation or conversation, Jesus Christ is still king and he's the God of surprises. Would you like to stand? I think we just need to... We're not going to sing, I'm just going to pray, but it's good just to stand and acknowledge him for who